Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings is the 11th book in the Bible, 11th section. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you can find it right there in the 11th. It's towards the left-hand side. It's right after 1 and 2 Samuel. That's where you're going to find that book, 1 Kings. Now, this is an internet statistic, so you're going to have to bear with me, you know, uh, how much you believe it or not. But statistically speaking, no job in the United States of America is more deadly than that of the United States president. Here's their basis for that. 45 men have held the title. Four of those were assassinated in the office. That was Lincoln, Kennedy, Garfield, and McKinley. While four died of natural causes. That would be Harrison, Taylor, Harding, and FDR. That's a rate of 18%, which means one out of five presidents is going to die in the office. And so the question was, do you, uh, do you, would you take a job with that kind of stats? Would you take that sort of job? Most of us would not, but it got me thinking... And I know the stat is a little bit lopsided. It's not lopsided because so many people die. It's, there's only 45, all right? So that's why the stat is so high. But it did get me thinking about uh, the difference in presidents and kings. Since we're starting this series, Kings and Kings, um, that would be much higher. Every one of those people die, right? A monarch, they all die out of that. You don't retire out of the monarchy. You die out of it. You are either assassinated, usually by a family member, or you uh, retire out of it. Only a few people have ever um, opted out of the crown or the, uh, the throne, uh, as it were. The story of Israel's kings are, is a fascinating one. That whole like dying in the office sort of situation is true of the English monarchy, uh, which a lot of us, that's what we think of when we think of kings, which is fascinating to me that Americans are obsessed with the English monarchy since we literally fought a war to tell them we don't care what they say. And uh, we still, you know, watch them and stuff like that. But it was also true of Israel's ancient kings as well. This story is filled with uh, all the things that a history buff would like, right? You have betrayal and politics, love, war, and national conquests. It's like any other story of kings and kingdoms. The story begins with a guy named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And they really liked that guy. They thought he'd make a great king because he was really tall and handsome. All right? And those are a couple of things that you want to pick up when you are looking for a king. But it turns out he was also arrogant and prideful kind of goes with the tall and handsome thing sometimes, but you know, that's just how that works. I'm not judging if you're tall and handsome, but I'm not, so I am judging a little bit, all right? So uh, he turned out to be not the greatest king, so God removed his blessing from him and went to the next guy, which I'm sure you're familiar with. His name is David. David is famous for a bunch of things, not the least of which is Goliath, right? He killed a giant. And he was artistic, so he was musical, wrote a lot of the, what you call uh, the Psalms in your Bible. If you open the middle there, he wrote a lot of that. So he's a very artistic guy. This series, our summer series, Kings and Kingdoms, season one, we're also going to do season two. This is season one, episode one, all right? We're going to do uh, these two series, picks up with David's son, Solomon. Now, if we were to think of David, uh, we would think of Goliath and Bathsheba. If we were to think of Solomon, you would think of wisdom or wise. A lot of people know Solomon for being wise. He wrote most of what we call the Jewish wisdom literature, which is he probably wrote Ecclesiastes. 
He also wrote Song of Solomon and he wrote the book of Proverbs or a great deal of it. And a lot of it he compiled. He was the editor, the general editor of the Proverbs. One of the most famous of all of the Proverbs is Proverbs 1 verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you look at the Christian standard, if you grew up like me, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. I was hoping that you guys would read that with me. We'll go ahead and read the CSB version of it. Just the first two lines. Y'all ready? Let's do it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Now, we are going to look at a story today in 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to look at a story that begins at the very early part of Solomon's reign, of his kingdom or his kingship. But we'll circle back to this proverb. And I think that it has a lot of helpful. So I don't want you to push that out of your mind just yet. Just keep it right there in the back of your mind as we look at this story. And we'll circle back to this concept, to this idea written by the same guy we're going to talk about. The, be- the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray together and then we'll jump into chapter 3 verse 1. God, thank you so much for this day. There are many of us who gather together, some online, some in person, who are this mixed bag of emotion. There are some in the second family, some in our extended Southern Baptist family who have heavy hearts today through tragedy, chaos, the effects of sin. And so God, we grieve with them. And if there are any in our midst today who are grieving, I pray that they would not feel us just saying to put on a smile, but that we grieve alongside of them, that we hold them close. At the same time, because we are humans and we are complex, we have joy. We're happy about the celebration of today, the lake party and the free t-shirts and all of that sort of stuff, God. And so that mixture is who we are. And I pray that through that, you would find our worship appealing. That through that, God, we would silence the noise, whether the negative or the positive, and we would listen to what your book says to us. That we would apply it to our hearts. And that God, where we are found wanting or we do not meet the standard, God, I pray that you'd give us the faith, the strength, and the dedication to best glorify you and be good for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. First Kings chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Let me read that to you. It's what it says. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon was brought... Uh, or Solomon brought her to the city of David until he finished building. Note these three things. If you underline thing, underline these. He finished building the palace, the Lord's temple, and the wall surrounding Jerusalem. However, the people were sacrificing on high places because until the time of the temple for the Lord's name had not yet been built. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father David, but he also sacrificed and burnt incense on high places. The king, Solomon, went to Gibeon, or Gibeah, to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask, what should I give you? The story of Solomon begins with a good king, however not great or perfect, who has a good heart and he has a a good plan, all right? No doubt about it, Solomon is a flawed king. And side note, 
I think that it is to our detriment that right now in our culture and in our society, we have lost the ability to recognize that people are good but flawed, or people can do good things but are also flawed. To speak about Solomon, to read about Solomon, is not to blanket statement say that everything he ever did was good. But we will instead focus on some of the good. Even in this text, there is this hint, there's this whisper that this guy is going to be a great king, but he's still going to have some flaws. Like his dad, women are going to be uh, a big problem for Solomon. Also, this whole business about he married the Egyptian pharaoh's daughter should send red flags up. For us, in our modern Western mindset, those not familiar are vaguely familiar with the monarchy, but not necessarily familiar with the Old Testament. This just seems like a diplomatic step. It's, a, it's honestly, it's a good diplomatic step, if you were thinking about that. That um, Israel, because of where it's located near uh, Egypt, the world power at that time, for the Jewish king to marry the daughter of Pharaoh was to align himself or to build an alliance with the strongest neighbor that he had. And so from the outset, it looks like a smart move. However, God has specifically told them not to marry non-Jews and do not set up uh, alliances with those who are um, enemies of Israel. And I want to be clear on this. God's uh, prohibition for the Jews to marry outside of the Jews had nothing to do with race. It was about the worship of false gods. Really the problem that God has with this situation is that Solomon, a worshiper of Yahweh, is marrying a person who is a worshiper of false deities and that is going to get him in a lot of trouble. It's not that God uh, was prohibiting that they would marry a different uh, race or culture. Moses is a good example of this. He did not marry a Jewish girl. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that he was what we would call today unequally yoked. That they had two different gods. The real God and false gods, and that's going to get him in a lot of trouble. He is a flawed king. However, he is a good king. He has a good heart, and he makes some wise decisions. In verse 3, as I showed you there, or as I read to you, it says that he followed, or he, he followed the, the ways, the statutes, and the instructions of his father. He had a good heart. He also had a good plan. When he marries this young lady, he brings her back and they, they stay in his dad's house. His dad's dead by now, but they stay in his dad's house because he hadn't yet finished the temple, the palace, and the wall. Those are good plans. Those are good things to build. You want a, a temple to worship the real God, the palace for the king to live in, and the wall to protect those citizens of Jerusalem. These are, this is a good plan. He also had a true worship. In verse 4, it says that he offered 1,000 sacrifices to the Lord. We need to be wise when we read the Bible. Uh, the Jewish writers of the Old Testament, they used what we call hyperbole, all right? So that it says that he offered a thousand sacrifices does not necessarily mean that he offered 1,000 lambs, all right? That doesn't necessarily mean that. Think about it like this. If you are, let's say you're a mama of a toddler and you take your toddler and you're going to go um, shoe shopping or whatever. You just, you know, you have to take them. They hate it, but you have to do it, right? And so you take them there. And then later that night, your husband gets home, your spouse gets home. And, um, and it's like, hey, so what did y'all do today? And they say, we went to the mall and mom bought like a thousand shoes, you know? You didn't literally buy a thousand shoes, right? You just bought a bunch. That could be what's being used here. Solomon offered a ton of sacrifices. Could have been 900 could have been 1,100, could have been exactly 1,000. 
But the point was that Solomon made this grand gesture, this huge act of worship in which we find to be God-pleasing. It's not just that he made a gesture, but that God was pleased with it. In a dream, God appears to him, like I read there in verse 5, and says, what can I do for you? Is there anything that I can do on your behalf? Now, we don't often think of dreams as communication from God. We think of dreams in line with, uh, with uh, something crazy's going on and it just kind of messes with your brain. Like myself the other night, two nights ago, we had gone to Fort Smith, my first time to go to Fort Smith, lovely city, liked it, and uh, went to this outdoor shop that has a ton of kayaks. And so I had sold my other kayaks and I was gonna swap them out pretty much is what I did. And so all day it's kayak, 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 all right? Me and my friends were talking about kayaks. I'm looking at kayaks, buying kayaks, uh, getting in kayaks, all that kind of stuff. So that night, I vividly dream that there is a kayak next to me that is full of water and the water needs to be dumped out. That is what I dreamt. And so in the night, in my dream, fully asleep, I get up in the bed like this and I grab a hold of Jackie. I I kid you not. I grabbed her side and her leg because kayaks cannot have water in them, all right? It's a bad thing. You got to dump this kayak out. And so I'm right here when she says, what are you doing? And I thought I said, I'm seeing things. And I laid back down. She says the next morning that I just mumbled and then laid back down. Here's another thing. The boys, uh, Haddon, was spending the night with his friend. And normally the dog sleeps in Haddon's room. But because the dog's super high maintenance, had to sleep on that side of the bed. How funny would it have been if in the middle of the night I flipped Jackie off the bed onto the dog? That would have been one of my favorite stories ever. But that is normally what we think of when we think of dreams. Just something crazy is going on in your brain and you're responding to it. But in the Old Testament and even further on, I mean, uh, God spoke to Peter this way. God speaks to people in dreams. He spoke to Joseph that way. He spoke to Jacob that way. He spoke to Daniel that way. And like I said, he spoke to Peter that way. God speaks to people through dreams. Not always, but sometimes that's the way he speaks. And in this dream, God appears to Solomon and he says to him, "What? ask what you want and I will do that for you right? Solomon's response in 6 through 9 is the example. It is, an, it, is a, it is a blueprint for how you and I should respond to success and to opportunity. And so even though it sounds like a really old dream from a king that you've never met, there is this really great sort of blueprint, step by step, in which we should respond. Look at verse 6. I'll read that to you. It says, and Solomon replied, he just speaks back to God. You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many, to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon responds by revealing what it is that he knows. First thing that he knows, he knows who God is. He knows who God is. 
the basis of his understanding, the basis of his monarchy, the basis of his, of his administration is an understanding, a clear understanding of who God is. Twice he says, you have shown great and faithful love. In the Hebrew, that word is kesed or hesed. It means a covenantal love. It means a promise-keeping love. The word that we would use today is a vow. And the most often way that we would use it is in a wedding vow. I promise to keep my promises because I love you. That sort of thing. He even mentions, he, he alludes to two things. Uh, the first one he alludes to is uh, when he talks about the great number of the Jews. He says there are too many to count. This recalls in your mind back to Genesis chapter 12 in which God tells Abraham at the time, I'm going to give you children and your children's children's children will be too many to count. There'll be more than the stars in the sky. So he's alluding to that saying, you are a promise keeping God. You promised my great, 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 great grandfather Abraham that there would be a bunch of us and there's a bunch of us. You also, there's another promise God made to his father, David, where it's called the Davidic covenant. So it's the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant in which God says, you will always have a son on the throne. Meaning or pointing to Jesus, but Solomon is the direct uh, fulfillment of that. Solomon says in a number of different ways, God, you are a great promise keeping God. Secondly, he not only knows who God is, he also knows who his father is. Now, Keep this in mind, or obviously he would know who his dad is, right? But it's not just the fact that he knows who David is. He knows, uh, where, he knows who he is because of David, right? So think about it this way. God appears to Solomon and he says, what can I give you? And his response is, you are a great God and my dad was a great king. You are a great God and my dad was a great king. Now, Know this, Solomon is not unaware of his dad's flaws, his dad's shortcomings, his dad's sin and evil. There's this one time his dad was supposed to be off in a military fight, but he wasn't. He was supposed to be being a king, but he wasn't. He was being lazy. And he was back home and he saw a woman that he wanted, a woman that was married to another person, and he took her and he slept with her. He abused his position and he abused her in a sexual way. He abused his position and he abused her. He took her as his own. Later on, to cover up this sin, he had her husband killed. His father was an adulterer, an abuser, and a murderer, or he committed those acts. Solomon is very well aware of those things. Why? Because that woman was his mama. That woman that David took was Solomon's mom. Solomon is very aware that his dad is not a perfect person, not a perfect man, not a perfect king. And yet he is also fully aware that like all of us, there's this mixture of the worst of us and the best of us. And he says, my father was a good king. He walked in your statutes. He tried, he pursued you. He was a man after your heart, even though he was deeply flawed. In other words, what Solomon says is he understands or he recognizes that he would not be the king if it were not given the opportunity by his father. He was not what we would call self-made. To be honest with you, I often feel like self-made is one of the biggest lies in American lore. That we hold this concept that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we can make it ourselves. But the reality is, and anybody who is honest and successful will tell you nobody is successful without somebody paving the way and helping and giving a kind and a gracious hand up. All of us are where we are today 
because somebody else helped us along the path. There's humility in that. God, you are a great God. And my dad, man, he's the real reason I'm sitting here. It's not because of anything I did. It's because of my dad. And then he goes one step further. He has this respect for God, this appreciation for where he came from. And then this humility in who he is and who he is not. He says, I am just a youth. I'm young. I'm too young. Like, listen, youth is a privilege. And if you're young in here, that's great. That's awesome. You know, it's fun to be young. But it does carry things like inexperience. That's what he says. He says, I don't know. I don't know how to lead all of these people. And keep that in mind. Was there anybody else who knew more about the monarchy of Israel than the son of David? Well, of course not. Is there anybody else that knows how somebody else should lead organizations than those who are not leading, right? Everybody with no skin in the game knows exactly how those who lay their life down should think and move and behave, right? But Solomon doesn't act like that. He's not a Monday morning quarterback. He's not an armchair quarterback. He is humble enough to know, I have limitations. He says twice, he refers to his dad as being God's servant. Then he says, your servant, me, I am your servant. Because at one point he took that faith on himself. He's a servant of God. So listen to me. I don't care if this is your very first time in church. I don't care if you grew up in church, but particularly I'm telling you this. If you had good Christian parents, flawed, but good Christian parents, at some point you have to make that decision for yourself. At some point it cannot be, my dad is a servant of the Lord you have to be a servant of the Lord. That's why he says, my, you, my servant, I am your servant, you are my God. And the fourth thing that he said that really shows his humility is he said, I am just among the people, a Jew among Jews, right? If you're friends with Solomon, you'd be like, yeah, you are, but you're really not. You're David's son, right? David is your dad. You're kind of special. You know, you're a little bit better, but that's not the way that Solomon saw himself just among the people. I'm just one of these people. The greatest of all leaders are the people who are just among the people. They just happen to have that mantle to carry. This, in all of these ways, he has this respect for God, this appreciation for where he came from, this understanding, this humility of who he is. That is a textbook definition of how it is that we should respond to opportunity and to success. David, Pastor David, not King David, posted on Facebook. He asked, if you were to ask God for something right now and you knew you would get it, what would you ask for? And here's some of the answers that he got back. Some of them are heartbreaking. Some of them are encouraging. Like one person said that they would love to see a loved one that has passed, right? And I think we, are, we would all be there. Another person put $1.68 gas prices, right? So that's, that's a good choice, right? Can I get an amen? Everybody, amen, right? If you drive a full-size truck, Right? And for others, somebody said, for others to know Jesus. I love that. That's good. Another person put a time machine. Um, I think the time machine is just going to get you in trouble. Just give me the cheap gas and I'll just stick to my machine, right? So how would you answer this question? Solomon answers the question by saying, I would like wisdom, discernment. The word means listen. He says, God, I would love to, I would love to really be able to listen, I don't know what I'm doing. I wanna be able to hear what they're not saying. I wanna be able to really discern what it is that they're saying, you know? That's, that was Solomon's request. And so God says to that, in that humble response, God says essentially this, yes and more, all right? I'm gonna give you that and a bunch more. Look at verse 10. This is God's response. Now it pleased the Lord 
that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you have requested this and did not ask for a long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, a lot of people ask for that, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, not the dead people part, but both riches and honor so that no king will be your equal during your entire life if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands just as your father David did. I will give you a long life. So he responds in these four ways. He says, you asked humbly. That's a, God says, that is the right request. So I'm going to give you that and some bonus, right? I'm going to give you wisdom, wealth, honor, and a long life. Wisdom in the very next story, the very next story in your Bible, we're not going to preach it so you can read it later, is about these two women that come to uh, Solomon. Tragedy. It's a tragic story. They both had very young infant children. And in the middle of the night, one of them rolled over accidentally and suffocated her child there. And so being deceitful, she swapped out the babies. Right? And the next morning, this woman wakes up and says, this isn't my baby. And so they take the baby to, uh, the living baby, to Solomon. And they say, they both say, that's my baby, that's my baby, that sort of thing. And Solomon says, bring me a sword. Y'all have heard this story before. Bring me a sword. And he says, let's just cut the baby in half. You can have half, you can have half. The problem solved. And, and uh, the woman, the real mom says, no, no, don't do that. Don't. She can have it. See, the mama was, she did what mamas do, sacrificially gave for the good of others. And so Solomon knew in his wisdom, he listened, heard what she did not say, heard what they were not saying and said, that is the real mom, right? That is the real mom. Another story says that diplomats, emissaries from all other nations traveled to seek Solomon because he was so wise. In 2 Chronicles 1, 14 through 17, it describes Solomon's wealth in terms of horses, all right? It just seems like a, a side story, but it's important for a number of reasons. One thing, side note, footnote, down here. Footnote is that God said back when he was giving the, the people of Israel a king, he specifically told them, okay, you can have a king, it's not a great idea, but you can have a king, but don't go get horses from Egypt. That's what he says, all right? So in Second Chronicles, when it talks about these horses, it's not just mentioning horses. It's saying, they're not doing what I told them to do, right? But he already got a wife from Egypt, so might as well get some horses, right? So um, that was what that's going on. But could you imagine knowing somebody and they say, you know how wealthy I am? This is how wealthy I am. There are entire cities that just hold garages just for my cars. Everybody that lives in that city takes care of my cars. There's some cool trucks, some fast cars, some classic cars, all that kind of stuff. That's essentially what they describe with Solomon's horses entire cities that are only there to take care of Solomon's Egyptian horses. Top line horses, right? That's how wealthy he was. In 1 Kings 4, 20 through 28, so the next chapter over, it speaks about there being peace in all the land and all the Israelis were eating, drinking, and rejoicing because Solomon was a good king. He was a great king, right? So wealth, wisdom, honor, there was, an, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus, all right? Ancient historian. And he wrote a book called Antiquities, several books. And in the Antiquities, book eight, chapter seven, paragraph eight, if you're ever looking it up later, that's where it is. It says, so Solomon died when he was already an old man, having reigned 80 years and lived 94. 
He was buried in Jerusalem, having been superior to all other kings in happiness, riches, and wisdom. Those two other guys, he was superior to them, right? He is the best. So these are all the promises God made to Solomon. But he said this, if you will walk in the statutes that I gave your father. See, sometimes we think of this story, I've heard it talked about before. We think of this story like God wrote a blank check. And in fact, I've heard people say that. God just writes this blank check, but it's not a blank check. God doesn't write blank checks, all right? Listen, you can't be so good or so wise or so good. You can't, you can't like do something so honorable that God owes you. God owes you nothing. God owes us nothing. He doesn't show up there and just say, hey, write a blank check and, and I'm, I'm held to it. He says very specifically, if you will obey and be faithful, then you will live your life. It, it, it makes me think of something I've seen an uptick in. I see this on social media. I see it in our media. I see it in movies and other sorts of entertainment. It's this uptick in language about manifestation or projecting. Y'all aware of this? You've seen this? People will say, things. I saw it this morning on Twitter. Somebody said, I hope that you will manifest a spouse that uh, responds to your love languages. They're just like mixing up all sorts of stuff, you know? And listen to me. That is straight dog poop, all right? If you hear or read somebody that's talking about manifestation or projecting out in the universe, you're like, oh man, I'm gonna project out a job uh, raise for you. I'm gonna project, we're gonna manifest a raise for you. That's not how that works. That's not how any of this works, you know? That's just not reality. It's silliness. You can't think happy thoughts into the world. Listen, the point is, According to scripture, to live a faithful God-honoring life, not success, live a faithful God-honoring life. If you do that, that is success. Sometimes God will choose to bless you with finances or uh, like, a, like a big house or something. Like Sometimes God does that to be leveraged for the good of others and the glory of God. Sometimes he does not, but that's not the point. That was never the point. And so this whole idea that he got wealth and all that sort of stuff wasn't the, it's not that we should live, we shouldn't manifest this sort of wisdom and this wealth and this stuff in our lives. We should just pursue who God is. Go back to what he says. You are a faithful, promise-keeping God. I am here because of the grace of others and in myself, I am limited. Not manifesting that sort of stuff. I just read it a lot this week and it was kind of getting on my nerves. So I wanted to tell y'all not to read that junk. And don't say it. Don't say it. It sounds worse. Verse 15 is the end of it. So like me a couple of nights ago, then Solomon woke up and he realized it had been a dream. Um, not just a dream. It doesn't say he woke up and he's like, oh, that was a crazy dream. And then he goes back to sleep. No, he realized that God was speaking to him. He went to Jerusalem about seven miles away. Gibeah was about seven miles to the uh, east of Jerusalem. So he went back. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and he offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he held a feast for all of his servants. Now, we read that, and uh, we don't really do offerings. Well, we don't do burnt offerings. We do offerings, right? In the boxes, in the back, when you're leaving, right? Offerings are good. We don't do burnt offerings or, or fellowship offerings. A burnt offering is what he did with the thousand lambs, is you burn up the whole thing. You, 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 you slaughter an animal and you put it up there and you burn up the whole thing. And it's, it's a symbol of worship. It's saying, I am all in, all of this. 
is to the Lord. A fellowship offering is different. It's in which you, um, you gut the animal and you burn the guts, all right? But the hide and the meat you give usually to the priest because this is how the priest um, made their, this is how they ate, all right? This is how they had hides and stuff like that. So that one was different. But both of them are essentially uh, Solomon going back to Jerusalem and saying, I'm all in and thank you. I'm all in and thank you. He responds in worship, catch this, when you take that meat, he threw a party. He says that's the very last thing. For all of his servants, he threw a party. For the good of others and the glory of God. Literally, it is everywhere in this book. For the good of others and the glory of God. That's the story. As I said at the start, I mentioned that there was this proverb. This one that I wanted you to keep to the side of your mind. It says, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Since Solomon wrote that, and since this story is about Solomon, I really do feel that that one line, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is this beautiful summary of what's happening here. The beginning, the beginning of Solomon's reign. The beginning right here at the start. He feared the Lord. He knew exactly who God was, this great and faithful promise-keeping God who has always been faithful before. He will always be faithful. He knew exactly where he came from. This isn't his own bootstraps. He is thankful for his father. He's thankful for his mom. He's thankful for the way that this came about. And then he knew exactly where. That is what the fear of the Lord. Sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, what does it mean to fear the Lord? That. You know who God is and who you ain't. You're not God. God is God. And that's the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of our series, the beginning of Solomon's story here is a wise one, an understanding one. It's exactly how it goes. And so I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. The very first step in any follower of Yahweh, any follower of Jesus, is right here. To acknowledge and to realize that God is the God of the universe, the creator God who has a standard that I have fallen vastly short of. I am ill-equipped. I cannot save myself. Neither can you. But God has paid that price. He has sacrificed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you will trust him, he will save you. And I know he will. You know why I know he will? He promised he would. He said he would. And he is the great and faithful promise-keeping God. And so I don't care how old you are or how young you are. I don't care if this is your first time. I am telling you, trust Jesus today. Trust him as your savior. And for those of you who have already done that, maybe did that as a child, you did that earlier, I want to encourage you to make a list, write it out in all the ways that God has been faithful and promise keeping to you. What are the ways? Because man, I'm telling you, it's some dark days, some hard things. It feels like you're just getting gut punched and then punched in the throat and then kicked in the knee. It feels like you're just getting hurt when you watch the news and the media, right? Make those, God has been faithful. God has been loving. God has been promise keeping. And then make another list about all the people who have gone before you, paved the way, helped you out, all that sort of stuff. And then I think it's good to reflect on, not in a self-loathing way, but in all the ways that you are inadequate, all the ways that you are insufficient and say, this, God, these are my limitations. And then you trust God to move and to act in those things. I wanna finish with this thought. Have you ever, you ever watched a show, maybe on Netflix or 
Or it was like, somebody was talking about it, so you went in like YouTube TV and you DVR'd it or whatever, you kept it there. Everybody's talking about the show and you start to watch the show and there's a cliffhanger. You know the cliffhanger? It's where you can tell in the first episode that, that there's a real story. There's a start, there's a finish, there's a climax, there's a resolution, there's conflict, all that kind of stuff. Right there in the first episode. But then there's these questions that need to be answered. They, they start flashing back to like, wait a second, does the dad die? And holy moly, they're triplets, you know, something like that. And, and you're thinking, I gotta watch this whole thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out, you know? I'm gonna figure this stuff out. And that's what they get you. It's called a cliffhanger. And you know what that is. It's a cliffhanger. That's why you end up watching six hours of Netflix when you should have gone to bed a long time ago because they just keep getting you at the end. You know, next episode. You're like, no, don't show me, don't show me. It's a cliffhanger. It's holding you right there. We read a story like this and it is a good, it really is to me, it is an inspirational story. I just want to trust God and to be faithful and to live my life and then die and be forgotten, right? That's what I want to do. But interwoven are all these cliffhangers. Maybe you didn't see them at first. This book, Kings, was originally one book, one big long book. Hebrew doesn't have vowels, all right? So you can imagine when you translate it into Greek, it gets way longer because you have vowels all of a sudden. And when they did that, the book got so long that it took up one scroll and then they had to start a second scroll. So you end up with first Kings and second Kings. You may have thought that was like divine Holy Spirit or something. Nah, scroll just ran out, all right? Said it's swift without the floppy disk, all right? So that's, that's all that happened there. But it was originally one story and it was compiled over decades and millennia, right? It was compiled over time where they were accounting the stories of the Kings. The very first audience, hear me on this, the very first audience of the completed King's book were in a time frame that we call the exilic period. They were in exile. The first ones to get fresh off the presses, the compiled King's book, when they read that thing together, they were enslaved in Babylon. So think about it this way. When they read that book, when they opened it up and they saw, and then Solomon took his young wife back to his dad's house because the temple, the palace, and the wall had not yet been built. They would have read that through tear-filled eyes. They would have looked up from that text to their city in ruins, smoke in which the temple, the wall, and the palace had not only been built, they were destroyed. They were pulled out of this thing. This massive final scene of season one, episode one ends with how did we get from that to this? How did we go from eating and drinking and horses and stables and a great young king to this. First Kings starts with the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, but it will eventually unveil to us what happens when kings and kingdoms stop fearing the Lord. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.